you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey guys, Roger once again with Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You know, this pandemic is devastating this business. And a lot of us have been successful in pivoting. A lot of us have not been so successful or fortunate to continue our business and grow it stronger. But what do you do when you have a sports bar and grill, a multiple unit sports bar, the concept whose very nature is all about the gathering of people to watch their favorite sports teams, the wins, the losses, multiple sports, and to share beer and good food and cocktails with the people you love, your friends. You know, what do you do? Well, in this episode, I'm speaking with Mr. Gio Concepcion, and he is the CEO of a company called Green Turtle Sports Bar and Grill, and they're based in Maryland. And he had a dozen locations that went down to about four, 700 employees that dropped to about 30, and now Gio is rebuilding his company. And he's doing it by community-oriented initiatives and a very high level of customer service. He's regaining consumer confidence and rebuilding his brand. There are so many nuggets in this episode, so many key learnings. You're not going to want to miss it, so stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. It's the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences, and pivot during COVID-19. This has been a major roller coaster ride for all of us, so I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Mr. Gio Concepcion, and he is the CEO and president of a concept in Maryland called Green Turtle Sports Bar and Grill. Welcome to the show, Gio. How are you doing today? Thank you, Roger. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Big fan of of the podcast. I really appreciate hearing that. You know, this this podcast is all about helping operators, like I said, you know, get through this COVID crisis and not only survive it, though, but put yourself in a better position in the future than you were before COVID, you know, and, and that's all about systems and it's all about an approach and it's about a leadership style and you can tell us about all those things. But before we get into that, I'd really like to know what your backstory is in hospitality. How'd you get into this business and how did you build your career before you got to Green Turtle? Absolutely. Well, that's a winding path. Um, I never thought I would be running a restaurant company. Um, Though I did work in hospitality as a young man, I was a a seat vendor in Wrigley Field. So selling hot dogs and beer was my early uh, exposure, but uh, didn't really think that there would be a lot more food and beverage involved out of that. After college, I went to New York um, and and went to work uh, at Lehman Brothers in 2008. So uh, I thought that might have lasted a little bit longer. It didn't. Um, And then I transitioned into uh, still in finance, but working uh, at Wexford Capital, which is a private equity hedge fund where I spent um, about eight years. And so um, and and my path actually took me from working in finance to the restaurant business. So at the time. Um, Wexford had made an investment in Famous Dave's, um, and I happened to be the junior analyst involved and and the very brilliant folks with a lot going on. And so Famous Dave's become became my place to focus and learn everything I could about restaurants. And so um, in doing that and working with the management team and, and helping think through who to put on that management team, 
um, I became so engaged that I, I told uh, uh, the chairman of the board at the time that, uh, you know what, I, I volunteer myself to go help turn this business around. And so, um, and, and so th they ultimately agreed. Uh, they said, you, now, you know, you know, this is very different than what you're doing now. This is, this is, you know, you just buckle up, buddy. This is, this is an operating company. Um, I took the plunge and haven't looked back since. That's a fantastic story. So you're a finance guy and you were literally thrown into this thing. You had to research, you had to understand, you had to learn as much as you could about restaurants. I'm sure it was sort of a crash course baptism by fire. And then you had to dive on in and make things work, right? Yeah, uh, trial by fire. What would you Never say the biggest uh, challenges were in doing that? Do you recall what, what was hardest for you or most, uh, you know, really put your feet to the fire? I would say, well, for me, the biggest challenge was, you know, coming from adjusting from that mindset in the finance world where you have a lot of smart people. We can put a presentation together and we can rationalize exactly how this comes together. But taking that piece of paper and then getting people to say, hey, let's all row in this direction. We love it. We buy into it. Let's make it happen. That was a ginormous gap. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a leadership and team building gap that certainly for me took some time to really adjust to and understand how, how to uh, coordinate and bring that all together with an organization. It's terrific. I mean, this is killer. I mean, this is a business where people get into it for a variety of reasons, whether you're a single location or you're a multi-unit chain. Passion is usually what gets us here, but there's so many things to running a great restaurant, and it's kind of like magic dust. You know, there is a formula to it, but that doesn't mean you can follow a formula and be successful. And especially in a turnaround situation where you've got to make some really difficult decisions, right? I mean, really challenging decisions that affect people and affect the customer experience and affect everything. But COVID's turned everything upside down anyway. So, you know, everyone out there listening to this podcast has had to do a lot of those things, a lot of difficult decisions. But I'm, I'm really interested to know because the brand Green Turtle goes back to 1976. I mean, it was founded in Maryland and it grew tremendously. Like it was a really fast growing concept and it was recognized, you know, in major magazines and all this kind of stuff. And it really built a following. But I guess what really challenges uh, the audience to know is when you've got a sports bar and you're really famous for craft beer and suddenly the experience changes and you can't have indoor seating at first, like what were the regulations in Maryland? Were you forced to close at any given period of time and then reopen with limited seating or did you just pivot completely to a takeout model? What happened? Right. We were in Maryland. We were, we were uh, mandated to be uh, off premise only. So, so delivery mm. and pickup only. Yep. And I would say, you know, to, to your earlier point, I mean, when we received the news um, and, and, and a little bit of backstory in the lead up to that, yes. you know, I had joined in May of 19. We were the team was putting in tons of work to reformulate uh, the menu, um, a new approach on the beverage program. We had all of these brand elements that were teed up and had been tested to go live in March. And so. We're sitting there sort of 
right as all of this is a, about to go live and, and, and the first things before the mandated shutdowns that came were the cancellation of the sports leagues. So March Madness for us uh, was the biggest driver of our business. That was the that made our year. So um, it was just like a slow rolling, you know, uh, death by a thousand cuts. It, it was absolutely brutal. And and I think, you know, at the time, and I remember it was it was one of those periods where we sat back and said, well, we, there's just no clarity. We've just lost the key components of our business. There's no clear time it's coming right. back. This is pre-PPP and, and everything else. And you're sitting there saying, how in the world are we supposed to make this one work? You know, and I know a lot of people, right, big, whether you're big or small company, um, there were just those really difficult uh, discussions and decisions and, and plans, plans that you hope you would never have to use. But unfortunately, in some cases, ended up being uh, what you had to do. Yeah, I mean, the movie Apollo 13 comes to mind. Houston, we've got a problem. And it's like, this has never been encountered before. And help is like 250,000 miles away. And it's like, we got to make do with what we've got. And suddenly, okay, we got to make some hard and fast decisions here. Now, I understand you went from a high of like 700 employees down to 30 employees. You had lots and lots of locations that ultimately got cut down to four. How did you decide which market areas got cut, which employees got axed? It's like, were you like right in the, you must have been, you were in the epicenter of this whole thing, pulling the strings, making stuff happen. Tell us about that. That was extremely um, heart-wrenching for you, I'm sure, but you had to do what you had to do. You were in the hot seat. No, absolutely. Uh, Just absolutely um, extreme times. And and it came down to uh, working with my team and saying, okay, if this is the environment, how do we resize the organization so we have at least a couple months of runway? That was the thinking. And so to get to a couple months of runway, here is what the organization needs to look like. And, you, you know, we drew it out. We have our finance folks there and say, well, we're going to to 30 folks. Right. And so um, in our case, what we had to do was we had a call with all of the store level folks that were staying on. Um, and told them, you know, this is a bittersweet message. We see you as part of the team. Um, and in being part of the team, here's what the next day looks like because we needed to effectively handle all of these transitions. And so, um, it was really, really, uh, uh, just, just a wild time. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, um, and I had sent a communication out at the time and said, you know, we're going to do everything we can to figure this out. We're here to support you. Um, to the extent that we can help you with unemployment, to the extent we can help you navigate uh, this situation, our folks are going to be here for you. Um, and, and we're hoping that this is limited and we'll be you know, running our business again in the near term. Um, and so I think that helped a lot. And I think people understood as painful as it was, <laughs> we, we, were, we were sort of forced into these really, really difficult decisions. And with all that being said, I think you know, that really paid dividends because, you know, with the unemployment benefits and the issues with labor, we were fortunate as we started to ramp up Mm -hmm. that folks wanted to come back. They wanted to join the team and and we were able to staff without issues for the most part. So 
Um, I, and I think that that was a huge silver lining to all of this. The, the trust, the loyalty, uh, the commitment from the team is, is, is you know, something that, that can only be forged in a crisis like this. So were you instrumental in getting PPP funds as well and maybe some other government relief? Did that certainly help you out? And- so, certainly uh, a big focus for us. We did receive PPP and that was extremely helpful for our organization. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the big question when that happened, and that was another thing in working with our franchisees, the rules were so unclear. Mm, and how exactly it was going to to work out that you 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 said okay well okay some liquidity to just stay alive is great now we don't know how these rules can evolve do we uh, forgive it all now so based on the forgiveness rules do we take a risk put more debt on a business and all of this uncertainty right I mean these were major strategic questions and in those early days it wasn't clear how that was going to evolve. So, so all of that, and, and thankfully the approach we took ended up working, which was a patient one. And, and we recommended that our franchisees do the same. And thankfully that was a huge lifeline. So did you have, or do you have company owned stores as well as franchise stores and you were primarily, or your finance team was responsible to get the PPP, but then the franchises were on, the franchisees were on their own to get their own funds or did you help with that? How did that work out? Correct. So, so in the franchise world, the franchisees ultimately um, are eligible for their own businesses under the PPP program. And um, our, our, our company applied separately. So we operate 16 of the 37, with the balance being franchise. Okay, let's talk about the concept again, because a sports bar is about the experience. It's about people getting together, whether you know somebody or you don't know someone. You walk in as a stranger, you leave as a friend with a whole crowd of people because of the common spirit and, you know, watching a game, whether it's the Super Bowl, the World Series, or a tennis match, or whatever it is, it's like people are there for the same reasons. They want good food, they want good beer and great experiences, food and beverage, but they also want to focus on the sports. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits and the sports teams, all that dries up. You can't have people inside watching sports anymore. And now you got to package what you have and keep the loyalty of the people that used to come to Green Turtle and somehow get new business in the door and make, you know, make lemons out of lemonade, <laughs> make lemonade out of lemons, you know what I mean, and, and pull the whole thing together. How did it work when you lost your experience and now it's a takeout experience? Was there any special branding or were there contests or were there sports trivia or anything? did you come up with anything interesting, unique? What was a win? If I... It- we tried so many things, and I'll just say we our 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 mode of operation is is I like to say we're a collective of entrepreneurs. Awesome. So we tried things as we looked to convert to a retail store in some instances. We looked to we considered becoming a marketplace for toilet paper and paper towels and retail beer, whatever we could possibly do. Um, we offered family kits, right? We did our to-go uh, cocktail kits. Um, and so we tried a variety of things. We went to uh, a slimmed down menu, reducing the menu by about 60% in, in a, a delivery only 
basis. And, and what, what I, or what we've seen is, is that, so our call it DSP and off-premise business tripled on an absolute basis run rate. So we were 10%, you know, now it's a little over 30, but stabilized wise, absolute dollar wise, it's about three times what it was pre COVID. And so what that says to me is, is that, that we were introduced to new folks um, that, that probably weren't dine in and they enjoy, um, they enjoy our offerings for to go, which, which was awesome. And I think a lot of what helped that was, in the lead up to this, right? So we're a sports bar and and because we had sales challenges, right? Pre-COVID, I'm walking into a situation, you know, they 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 they're bringing me in when there's when there's problems to solve, right? So we were already trying to address some of these issues and the open question really was and a lot of franchisees were were adamant about this is that do we want to even be a sports bar? Mm. Is that, you know, is that directionally how we're going to grow together? Yeah. And so um, that was one of the things we're exploring very closely now. Um, but as a result of that, what, what I told franchisees is that I think we, we shouldn't conflate issues. People love us for our sports. March is our biz- busiest month. NFL's huge for us. What we need to focus on is when there's no sports. This needs to be a standalone great experience. We have to be able to do that. And so what does that look like? And so the evolution happening before this on the menu side. So, for example, one of our, our best tested items that made the full menu were uh, a Korean salmon bowl um, and steak bowl. Right. And, and people thought I was crazy when I said we're going to put these bowls in a sports bar menu. This is, and I think, um, in my mind, I I always love a test. Said that's okay. Let's let's see what the market thinks. They're going to tell us what they think, right? So so I think what really helped us is that in the lead up to this, we were uh, really focusing on how do we make this a great experience, absent sports. Sports will always be here. We'll always uh, uh, do well during that time. But if we can figure out how to make it a great experience standalone. That would help us. And it just happened to be that certainly COVID and losing sports completely um, uh, uh, bared that out. You're like, are you freaking kidding me when this all happens? Yeah. But cutting a menu 60%, I mean, that's crazy. Well, not crazy. I mean, you did it and it's what you had to do. But it's like, think about the choices you had to make versus what used to be popular may not be what travels well, or how did you make those decisions and pare exactly. things down that significantly? Exactly. Just like that. That was an ever moving. And I, I think one of the things you always say is that there, there's a thousand details in this business. And, yes, there are. It, it, and, yes. and <laughs> when you start layering in multiple units, the complexity just starts right. to snowball. Right. And so to that point, Right. Initially, we said, okay, um, we have XYZ inventory. I have no idea if we'll ever move that. Okay, we need to make sure that we're moving all of this inventory that we have. A. B, does it travel well? You know, C, you know, can we execute it? All these other things. So, so right, we needed to manage, hey, we are the way restaurants work, right? They're 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 working off of tomorrow's sales to pay today's bills. So yes, you know, yes. if we would have sat there and and not offered 
whatever we happen to be um, have in inventory that would have created other kinds of problems that we had. So, so we needed to take a look at here's what we have, here's what we can execute and do a cross section of that. Then as COVID started to develop, then we started getting into issues where we ended up uh, having to, to make decisions about whether to buy beef or whether, whether to buy wings. How is this going to evolve? Are we going to be sitting here with no product to offer at some point? And so, um, and I think that's just a testament to, to how the team has, has learned to adapt. We, we were uh, adjusting as, as, the, as the environment became more and more clear. Right. And then you, no one could tell which prices were going to rise. And our costs of doing business certainly have gone up because suddenly you had your pricing that customers were used to. And now you've got rubber gloves and hand sanitizer and you got takeout containers and all kinds of stuff that you didn't have to have before that just increased the cost of goods or at least your operating expenses have gone up. And maybe you were able to raise prices to compensate a lot of operators out there just eating it because they can't. You know, their prices are what the market will bear right now. We're competing against lots of competition for that consumer dollar. I mean, these are all challenges we've all faced. It, it is, uh, it was a brutal environment before. Yeah. And it, it is, it is still uh, pretty rough out there. But that being said, I think we are seeing some recovery um, on the sales side. And I think that, you know, as we get past this, um, the good operators will be beneficiaries of this of this newer environment, Definitely. and and so as 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 bad as this has been, you know I think having a reset and having uh, your your good operators be able to focus and grow again um, uh, will definitely be a silver lining here. So I'm imagining that there are best practices that your company followed, but now you're dividing your balance between company owned stores. And now you want your franchisees to succeed, but now suddenly you've got to give them a roadmap for the way forward in many cases, right? You got to provide direction because they still represent the brand itself. They have to maintain consistency of product and offerings and all these things. And there's a lot to execute in addition to, oh, you know, I can't afford to pay the rent right now. And what do I do? I got to, I got to, you know, negotiate concessions with my landlord. And it's like a thousand details right there too, just guiding these people, I'm sure. Right, some seasoned operators, maybe some a little bit newer, but every, nonetheless, you got to provide the guidance as a parent company. That's exactly right, and I think sometimes um, uh, it's it's not clear to folks that for, as a franchisor who also operates, you're running two different businesses, and and on the one hand, where you're operating, those are right; those are your operations. You have full control with your franchisees you have the control governed by your franchise agreement in one sense, but in a, in a much more important sense, and especially after a turnaround environment, you're leading by influence. And so in order to do that, um, right, we need to be anticipating and ahead of the things that they're going to need, require, request as best as we can and provide them that roadmap so that, um, right, what we know will happen absent doing that um, these are entrepreneurs. They're going to figure it out on their own. And so, and so certainly I tell my team, and that's why we need to anticipate what they need 
so that they don't come up with their own solutions. It's true in a turnaround prior, right? When things are challenging, one of the biggest challenges any executive has coming in is just the sheer trust factor. Here are folks who have bought into a system that was supposed to work and it's not working. And why should I trust what you're saying? And it's one of the biggest challenges that 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 happens. And so um, once again, I think it early stage um, for me, it's a lot of listening, a lot of understanding. Um, but uh, these folks, right, they 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 want you to show them with results what works. And so thankfully, in the lead up to, to uh, COVID, we had we had regained a lot of that trust and we were rowing in the same direction. And so I think for us. Um, we need to maintain that. And we do that by trying to anticipate. And it's super difficult. I don't want to say we, we, we can't possibly always get it right because we operate in multiple states and counties and we just can't anticipate everything. But I think we have the big buckets of activity in ways that have been very helpful for franchisees. Now, you're reopening locations that you formerly had to close. Um, has that been a challenge in any way? Those spaces sat idle. Were you, you know, were you lessors of those properties? Did you own any of that real estate and you were just forced to close them? And what's happening now? So, so the, the closures were a result of the statewide shutdowns and not understanding what the revenues were going to be. Yeah. And so we, we lease all of our, our 16 properties. And so, mm-hmm. okay. um, you know, as we, as we started to see the business stabilize, um, we, we started to look at the to-go numbers and started to prioritize, okay, which of these would logically generate sufficient business to keep sort of a, a skeleton crew operation going. And so we slowly started trickling those back. And then when we, we, we were uh, available for limited dining, we started to, what really helped was patio season. Yes. Once we were able yes. to bring patios online, that's mm-hmm. when, when the mm-hmm. bulk of the units um, returned. And I think, you know, that once again, a testament to the team, I could just, t- the, the people here and the executive team, my head of development, we called him, you know, our, 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 our Cisco guy, he was driving, um, or, you know, he, he was driving supplies back and forth, helping stores get open. I mean, this was, this was a full on everybody roll up your sleeves type of effort, right? Because we couldn't restaff quickly enough for how the environment was changing, right? So we, it was, it was, it was just something to see. That's fantastic. Testament to leadership, though. Now you're talking about because it all trickles down from the top. You lead by example. You hire great people, and I know that's always been part of your philosophy. But you had to lean on a lot of key people to make all this happen, and everyone below you had to lean on their people below them just to get everybody, like you say, rowing in the right direction. Is there any particular uh, tricks or what's your management style? Like, how do you do it? That, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And I will say I am still, uh, it, I have an emergent, uh, 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 philosophy on it. I, I don't, I'm constantly learning and evolving. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've really taken to heart out of this is, is, uh, you know, a lot of times we like to forecast and rely on these projections and, and feel comfort with it. And really, you know, as a, as a management team in an uncertain environment, the, the best thing I can possibly do 
is try to give my people frameworks for dealing with uncertainty. And, and so, and so what does that look like? So for our, after COVID, our first executive retreat, the, the team activity, people were broken up into three teams. And, and, and along these lines, we said, okay, um, we just went through this pandemic. No one could have anticipated, right? There's no predicting this. So let's think about what else in the world could be unpredictable. So each of the teams received a new uh, government mandate that they needed to come up with a business plan to address. One of them was a prohibition being reinstated. Oh, so you wow. think losing awesome. sports was bad? Yeah. Let, let's figure out. Let's figure out having no alcohol. I, I want you guys to figure that out. One was a permanent ban on indoor dining. Um, another uh, permanent ban on on delivery. And and the purpose of it was was not just to stress everybody out. I think what we came out wow. of that with is that people came up with some. They came up with such good ideas that they actually ended up in our pipeline for, for things that we may test. I mean, it, it, was, it was really great, but I think the more important thing was um, this idea and this mentality that let's just anticipate the unexpected and quickly move to adjusting. There's, <laughs> once it happens, we're, we're, right, we can't cry about it. We're, we need to be moving. That's brilliant. That takes damage control like 10 levels beyond and to get people to think things through and what if scenarios. I mean, that is amazing. And no matter what happens, I mean, what a, you know, what a great thing to have in the toolbox, <laughs> you know, for the future, for now, that had to pay huge dividends. Yeah. Well, and, and what I like about it is people still joke about it. Yeah. They're like, you know, well, which, which, which case do we need to prepare for? <laughs> We've got but you know, a lot of them covered, and if there's not one, we'll figure it out. And I think that's super important. But I call, that, other, I call that empowerment, Gio. You know, I love this word empowerment because and, – and entrepreneurs also, because everybody knows what an entrepreneur is, but this word entrepreneur is someone who works for an organization that treats it as if it's their own business and puts the solutions in place and comes up with the great ideas and inspires and leads the people as if they own that business. Regardless of how they're compensated, it's really a different mindset. And it sounds like you've got people in your organization that do that. Um, I, I'd like to think we do. And, and to that point, we made a big effort earlier on of moving toward, even at the store level, aligned compensation where don't only think like an owner, you'll have a share in the profits like an owner. Your bonuses will be based on the results you can produce. And so, you know, we made a commitment to that earlier on. And, and as I told uh, my executive team, the, the trickiest part here is going to be that flip over in thinking at the store level. Is that right? Where, where, and I love the basis thing is, is that remember the process uh, serves the business. The business doesn't serve the process. And so uh, we don't ever want to be in a mode where guests are unhappy. We're not hitting sales, but I followed all of the process. So therefore, I've done a good job, right? And so I think um, that mindset shift um, is, is thankfully, once again, this was a pre-COVID thing. Having it, 
we couldn't have been in a better situation coming into COVID land where we really needed these guys to be thinking independently. So, Gio, this is the perfect segue because we talked a little bit about management style and leadership and the people below you in key positions that made all this happen. But now you've got all the people in the trenches on the front lines with your customer. So I really want to know, I know that Green Turtle is known for a high level of customer service. I mean, that is a very foundational element in any successful restaurant. But in order to execute that, it takes training and it takes commitment and it takes constant attention to all those details that the customer sees that you want to be an excellent experience so that not only do people come back, they tell everybody they know, but it leads to positive online reviews and all this stuff is just terribly important. What would you say your, you know, the training process is at a green turtle restaurant, the onboarding process, the indoctrination into the company culture? I want to know about all that. So the, the training process uh, varies by position. For, for managers, it'll be anywhere from 10 to 14 weeks. Um, for the entry-level employees, it can, it can be anywhere from three days for, for front of house to uh, 10 days, depending on back of house of position. And, um, and what I would say is, is that one of the key elements of, of the reformulated turtle um, involves rethinking our steps of service. And what I would say is, is that we, we have a very, um, I think we got into a mode of a very, uh, repetitive um and 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 i would call it like a machine-like steps of service process Mm -hmm. um and and you know this goes back to the the earlier comment comment about management style i think one of the biggest challenges is to um make sure that the executives sitting in an office don't lose touch with what their ideas how they play out in their head and how they play out in real life Okay. And so, so what do I mean by that? Um, a lot of times, um, and we'll, you know, in, in, at Dave's implementing technology, huge thing. And, and I think it's a given you have, it's table stakes. You, it, it has to be a focus. Um, now, does that mean that your server needs to say, would you like to hear about all of our LTOs? And by the way, download our app. And by the way, here's the special and, uh, right. And, and, and now you've created this dynamic of, um, right, there's, there's this pressure and tension in the, in the service element that doesn't, need to, that doesn't need to be there and I don't think is effective. And, and why does that happen? Well, because we say, well, we know we need loyalty and we know we need people in our loyalty program. So we need to drive up the program. So we need to make the server do it, right? So it just sort of, and, and, and well, well. The marketing guy, he wants to make sure that his LTO sells. So he wants to make sure that they're talking about that, right? And and so mm-hmm. um, for us, and 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 we're going through that and and reevaluating that even to this this point, um, right? Let's let's focus on a uh, end user basis. This has to be natural. This needs to be seamless. Um, and so. Um, we're reformulating that program, and I think certainly uh, uh, come Q1, um, you'll see a very different service style, um, and, and that'll align with some of the other changes that we've made to the brand. And, and, I, and, and maybe we get into this later. We just launched a new prototype in California, Maryland, which opened on October 5th, 
and and it's just exceeded expectations on on every level. It it, it set pre-COVID sales record for a new store. Um, we're six weeks in, and it continues um, um, to do over a hundred thousand dollars a week, which is fantastic for for our concept. Mm-hmm. Terrific! That's amazing. You know, let's talk about the consumer itself. Are you seeing that the consumer has changed? Is it a different market now? Is it some of the old and a lot of the new? What are you seeing there? So I think there's there's a couple things that have shifted dramatically. And um, I always say that to be in the restaurant uh, business is to be in the real estate business. It's just such a critical component. Um, and and yet another another area that makes our business so so challenging, um, and so when all of this was happening, we took a look at our portfolio and we said, okay, what of the what which of these were struggling before, which may never come back? We have to be we have to have be eyes wide open about it today. And I think it's a mix of work from home, a mix of of people. Uh, just changing uh, their their daily behaviors. If the the best performers have changed, even as as dine in has turned online, and so and so, I think right th- this will be an interesting thing that plays out across the industry. Assuming that it holds in, is is that um, if we're in a remote work environment for an extended period, uh, restaurant real estate. Uh, the the markers will change and drivers will change. And we've certainly seen that in our portfolio. For sure. How many seats did a typical green turtle have pre-COVID? And then we talked about the patio thing, and I'd like to know where you are now in terms of limited seating, but how many seats you're able to serve on a daily basis, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so, so a typical footprint would be Anywhere from 75 to 150 seats. There's a decent range there. Mm-hmm. Square footage would range anywhere from 5,000 to 12,000 on the high end. So um, a little bit of variance in the footprints. Um, and, and in terms of, of current seating, we have um, available for seating uh, 50% in Maryland. We've had to draw that back in Baltimore County. There are some in Montgomery County. Um, so, so there are some real time adjustments happening there. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I had, uh, uh, for our board meeting, I, I had a slide prepared that showed how many seats inclusive of patio we have versus prior. And we were down something like, uh, uh 60% in total seating capacity. Um, and meanwhile, at the time we were at around 80% of, of, uh, pre-COVID sales. And so, you know, I think the, the read across is once again is, is we probably hit a constraint between weather and just people who feel comfortable going to restaurants are doing it. Um, and the next wave won't happen until we get a little bit more clarity. But if you look at the numbers we're able to do with this limited capacity, that makes me super optimistic for, for yes. what the future can look like. Well, those are extraordinary numbers, especially the location that you just opened that you said is the fastest growing in the history of the whole thing. I mean, that, that's extraordinary even during these times. So, you know, 
no one's got the crystal ball. No one knows what 2021 is going to be like. The first couple of months, it's like, is a vaccine going to change everything if it's proven? You know, where's this whole thing going to go? But you're in a solid position and you're optimistic about the future in terms of your current performance um, compared to where it used to be and where it's going. So that's extraordinary. It's very inspiring as well. It's exciting times uh, in, in that regard. I think the the new prototype was just, it, it's been energizing for the whole organization. It was the first time we were able to pull together all of the uh, elements that we had in, in terms of menu, in terms of design. Um, and, to, and, you know, I think the question always is with, with vintage concepts, if we modernize it, if we make these changes, does it still resonate with the guests? Mm-hmm. Do Correct. we still have an engine? And when it works, it, it, it's been uh, really, really exciting for our team. Now, you're a finance guy. So I got to go to the finance uh, area now in terms of the individual locations and the GMs that run them. They've got to be bottom line oriented people. They've got to run the numbers. They got to understand the numbers. And then you're on top of that and you're watching all these locations perform. Are they incentivized either prior to COVID or now to hit certain numbers, not only in terms of sales, but in terms of bottom line performance? So we use a metric called total controllable income. And, and it's a, it, it's, and the idea is, and, and we adjust it. The idea is to take the PL and break it up by things that are fixed or not really uh, impacted by the GM um, versus all those things that the team controls. And so the TCI becomes their metric for bonus programs. I like that. And, and people loved it. And, and, and I, you know, I, people have different schools of thought on it. I think, you know, to me, and once again, coming from a finance background, get, you know, give me a week of sales and I could give you within a range exactly all the economics of your operation, I, I, right? I just, I, I can back into it and, and, and be within a couple points. And so that being said, let's let our people get smart and understand all of the drivers. We have, no, we have only things to gain by making them um, um, more informed. Right, especially if we're asking them to be owners. So, you know, even the identifying the TCI calculation was a feedback back and forth. Right? Utilities. Oh, we, no, no. Well, it's not all. It's not all fixed, right? And so, right, we have these little pieces where uh, yep. where there's certainly some adjustment. Um, right, right. But I think all of that starts to get healthy because it makes people think about it once again. Just the exercise of saying. Well, what should be TCI? What's not? Has people thinking in the right way? You know, this takes me back. Because when I started my first restaurant going on 22 years ago, and I've, I've mentioned this in other podcast episodes, and the audience may or may not have heard this, but I had a steakhouse, and I had a wood-fired pizzeria, and I had all this kind of stuff. But it's like every time I sold a $20 steak 22 years ago, it's like half the staff thought 22 bucks just went into Roger's pocket. He's getting rich. I'm doing all the work. It's like 
And I suddenly had to sit down and, and create a very simple yet understandable sort of open book management sort of training thing where we took that $20 stake and we broke down every single thing that went into putting that in front of the customer and what the real profit was. Oh, and by the way, if that dishwasher just dropped that $7 plate, there goes the profit off the next stake. And it was very simple, but they got the message. And suddenly it had such a huge impact from the amount of silverware that was very expensive that ended up in the trash every night to people really caring and then being incentivized to care. Do you do anything like that? Um, so so the, the idea with TCI is, is the hopes that RGMs yes. will um, inform the staff in that shared goal of, of trying to improve the performance. But I, I think... You know, I think what you said there is right. There's this perception that, um, oh, you know, the the every owner or restaurant owner is just you know bathing in wealth somewhere. And and um, as the founder uh, of Famous Dave's, Dave Anderson, used to like to say, uh, how do you make a big fortune in the uh, a small fortune in the restaurant business? You start with a large one. Um, and and that's right. It, it is a it is a game of inches. It is razor type margins, and and it's funny how a lot of times the folks in the building um, um, really don't have that full picture to to understand what you know what why there's so much focus on cost control. Yeah, most of them just don't because maybe they're not paid enough to care or they're not trained to care. But they have such a key to the bottom line performance of a restaurant, you know, any of the cooks on the line, any of the people with portion controls. I mean, again, there's those thousands of details. Everyone front of house, back of house has some sort of impact on profits and they yep. need to understand that on a basic level. So I'm glad we went down that road. Let's talk about how you've been communicating with your customer and, you know, how you might have gained back their confidence. Any special communications that you did now that you pivoted early on into, you know, the takeout model? Were you putting any kind of notes in the bags? Were you asking for feedback, positive reviews online? Were you telling them all about your best practices or safety practices? Every restaurant's doing a little differently, and I'm sure you had some something to do there as well. Sure. So, so early on, we were sending um, just regular updates to guests via social media, via, via our email database about um, different, just keeping them posted about how the organization was evolving. So here are the stores that are opening. Here is our process. Here's our procedure. Can't wait to see you. Um, trying to keep them in the loop because so much was changing early on. Um, in the early stages, uh, our management teams were, were writing handwritten notes in, in the delivery uh, orders. So, so to the best they could, um, they, they'd write a handwritten note and say, thanks a lot, you know, for joining us. Um, one of the, uh, uh, initiatives we had that was, that I was blown away by the response was, um, the ability to, to buy a meal for a staff member with your to-go order. And so, um, we were able to, uh, give multiple days of free meals to our unemployed employees as a result of guests buying meals for folks. And so- nice. Um, you know, I think once again, the, uh, it, it was one of those situations where we're, we're, while we're concerned about our ability to exist, we're still doing everything we can knowing that, that 
we we don't exist without our people and we need to figure out how we keep them and support them through this time. Now, the craft beer has always been a big piece of, of Green Turtle success. And I know that you've got mug clubs and I had a super successful mug club in, in my flagship restaurant as well. And then you mentioned obviously doing the pivot to, you know, curbside cocktails and all that kind of stuff. Were you selling growlers of beer at that time or other ways of, of packaging the beer? And were you offering the mug club members special deals on the beer, even though they couldn't drink out of their mug and drink in, in the locations? We did not offer specials for our mug club members, um, uh, uh, unfortunately, but um, we did. So uh, for the cocktail kits, we were selling that on a, on a retail basis. So so that's going out the door um, um, just directly from the distributor as it came in. Okay. And then for to go cocktails, we were we were packaging those um, um, with, with with our normal uh, to go drinks. But, um, you know, I think the on the craft beer side the craft beer world evolved so quickly. And I think, you know, th this was one of the challenges that, that green turtle had was as we started to franchise um, and, and we, we hung our hat on, on that craft beer piece. We were now going into different markets. Um, we were now going to places where people had different tastes in craft beer because it's such a hyper localized um, trend. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And so we found ourselves at a crossroad about how do we stay true to being a craft beer offering and navigate these various different markets and support that uh, in a uniform way. And so, you know, I think and this this is starting to go back to we've really had to reformulate that and provide a lot more latitude um, and, and figure out, OK, we may not be dense in, in New York. But because we have our, our operations in Long Island, we do need to have those relationships with local brewers. And we need to figure out how we, whether that's going to be the GM or a different person, navigate that. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's something that has been a focal point for us. And I think it's reestablishing um, uh, and really getting, getting in step with, with how that craft beer landscape has evolved. All right. Gio, I'm going to ask you to put your marketing hat on now. And uh, that's a key question during COVID because a lot of operators, big, small, have had to shift their marketing plans to adapt and change it dramatically. Um, I don't know if you've ever done radio, TV, print, direct mail, what your strategy was prior, but what is it now and what's what's been working for you, not only to keep your loyal customers coming back, but to introduce Green Turtle to a whole new market? So the the answer pre COVID all of the above, um, I, I think I I struggle as I think a lot of restaurateurs do in in trying to divine what the value of each of those buckets are. Um, I think in an ideal world, certainly uh, finance hat. I wish I could just say here's my direct correlation the return on marketing. Um, I think they they get they get a little tricky. But um, in terms of directionally where we are now. For the for the most part, we're sticking to to um, to digital um, and a little bit of print, mm -hmm. and and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it feels like we are uh, reaching that point where the folks who want to be out are out, 
And so if we can get an incremental visit or, or exposure to a new guest, most likely that'll be on a digital platform. Most likely that'll be um, a delivery guest um, and, and probably outside of the four walls in the near term. And so that, that's been um, our, our current focus. But I do think um, it will get interesting as we start to turn the corner here. Um, how do we re-enter the, the market? How do we look at various things? A lot of the nationals have pulled out of TV. A lot of the, some of the nationals have pulled off of Facebook. Um, what does that mean for smaller concepts like us? Does that open the window um, to do some things? Um, and so, um, you know, my marketing team is 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 monitoring how that landscape is is evolving. And so, I think as we as we look to expand with our new prototype and and make people aware of the new iteration of the turtle, um, you know, I, I will we'll be looking at at is there a place where there's a dislocation where we might try something we haven't done before? Let's talk about social because you mentioned Facebook and obviously Instagram is a growing platform for restaurants because it's so visual. And I'm certain I shouldn't speak for you, but I'm going to ask if you're doing corporate posts and then giving your franchisees sort of the opportunity to use your corporate posts or to customize them for their local market. How does, how's that working? Um, so, so right now we, we have a little bit of a dual system. We, we have the main green turtle, um, uh, parent page. Um, and then a couple of our franchisee locations have individual pages. And much like you said, um, we do provide all of our content for franchisee use. Um, and, and they're, they're eligible. They can use sort of a library of different content to the extent that they have some other uh, a promotion or thing that's relevant to their market. I see. May I ask how your rewards program works? Um, so we have we have two uh, different rewards programs. So we have the traditional what I call a loyalty uh, 1.0 program, which was our mug club. Um, and so for um, for forty dollars, you join our mug club. You get our classic uh, ceramic mug. Um, and you get um, a dollar off all domestic 16 ounce, 16 ounce drafts um, and uh, a mug club party once a month, which will which will include uh, free food. So so that that's uh, sort of loyalty 1.0. The now uh, what were what were the things that uh, make me uh, uh, feel like there was a missed opportunity when this was established? We had no uh, spreadsheet data. We, we had no way of practically tracking this outside of a notebook somewhere. And so um, I know there's plenty more Mug Club members that, that we probably can't get in touch with at this point. Um, and so now, um, and, then we have, and then we have our digital uh, uh, platform, which, which is really just a, a frequency, uh, a convenience platform uh, on our app. And, and that's, a, that's a point-based system um, where you can receive 10, uh, up to 10% off given different spend levels. Um, and so you know, th- now we're in a mode of looking to merge those two together. So, so now the digital loyalty and the mug club are moving toward one. So, so when you join the mug club, you'll automatically be enrolled in the digital program. And now we'll be able to have a, a much uh, better view of, of who are, uh, 
uh, most loyal folks are because the reality is is that for our brand that mug club is 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 by and large the most loyal group definitely i, I remember those days well <laughs> we had a mug club that started with 50 and we ultimately grew it to 1200 in a single location and we wow. ran out of places to store the mugs yeah. i'll tell you <laughs> That was a real issue that 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 yeah. Turtle dealt with. Yeah. Well, you know it's amazing. I mean, mug clubs are awesome because of the service that you give these people. And I don't know to this day how my bartenders were able to get to know such a huge cross section when that club got to be that big. But as soon as somebody walked through the door, Geo, it's like they were instantly recognized. We knew what they drank, what their favorite beer was, and the bartenders were pouring the mug before they got within 30 feet of the bar. And if there was a crowd, the mug would find its way through a sea of people to the person because the bar was usually filled with other mug club members. And they all it was this one big happy family club thing, and it was just huge. I mean... If people listening, our audience don't have a mug club and you've got a bar and if you serve draft beer, you gotta get a mug club. It's a huge idea. People love it. They people do. love it. Right? It's that cheers formula. I know I've said this before, but people want to go where everybody knows their name and they feel like this is my place, and that's called affinity, and that is the most powerful form of marketing I know. Absolutely. To that point, sometimes we, we have had some turtles that that did not reopen post COVID. Um, but people were up in arms about ensuring that they could go and retrieve their mugs. I mean, it is an emotional connection with the mugs for sure. That is absolutely true. Well, Gio, it's been such a huge pleasure having you on the podcast today. Uh, let me just mention your URL is thegreenturtle.com, and green has an E on the end of it, does it? Correct. Is that correct? English spelling. Yep. Okay. So it's an old English, thegreenturtle.com. I've been to the website. I always thought that a great website really puts you in the place, even though you've never visited it. And I certainly got that feeling from, from your website. So good job there as well. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure hosting you. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. And that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. We will see you all in the next episode. Thanks, guys. That's another great episode in the books. If we learned anything in this episode from Geo, it was all about to build your business, to build your brand, to drive your restaurant forward. You need three things. Number one, cost controls and profit maximization. Number two, staff training, development, recognition and rewards. And three, what I call marketing firepower and affinity. All of these are simple systems that you can execute and implement in your business. Why not head on over to restaurantrockstars.com? These systems are available individually or in one big collective package called the Restaurant Rockstars Academy, and you too can transform your business. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have an idea for an interesting topic or a guest you'd like me to interview, please drop me a line, Roger, R-O-G-E-R, at restaurantrockstars.com, and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.